You're listening to the New Century Multiverse. Steamheart. Chapter 38. Salvation. From the Journal of Abigail Gray, Mississippi, July 23rd, 1883. On the fourth evening of our imprisonment, things were growing desperate. The army had not showed and snatches of what was going to happen to us after a certain day began to filter through from conversations outside. The building we were being held in was solid brick, a series of cells side by side. The one we were in was large enough for myself, Butler, Harry, Raven, and Jeremy, so I had to wonder how many people they played host to in this settlement. There were any number of fates which might have befallen James as he raced to Vicksburg. A snake could have spooked his horse, leaving him thrown and injured or killed. Wendigos could have gotten to him. Raiders. Coyotes. A hungry bobcat. The only tiny shreds of hope that I had left were firstly that he had not yet been dragged back to town, bloodied and captive, eliminating all chance of reinforcement and rescue. And secondly, my own estimation of how long it would take to march 50 men to Green Hollow. However, if they had set out the morning after he reached them, surely they would have been here yesterday. Time was running very short. Our jailers for the night were a man we knew only as Morris, and his son, Adam. Adam was nine years old and had an ugly, sour face like his father. They patrolled the jail for hours on end, resting from time to time but rarely taking their eyes far from us. Morris was very gruff with his child, and I'd watched him cuff the boy around the back of the head repeatedly for dawdling. One way I noticed that Adam was different was that he often spent time looking down at the wreckage of Steamheart. Occasionally he would dip into his pocket and pull out a little shiny but blackened object. He would wipe it on his shirt and inspect it before stowing the thing away again. Late in the night, when the heat had somewhat receded, and that bitter resentment in their eyes had ever so slightly abated, I moved over to the bars, looking through the window down to what remained of that once great machine. Adam caught me staring and sidled over. How far did you ride in that thing? He muttered. More than 1,800 miles, I breathed. And let me tell you, that was some fine machinery. Can you say what this doohickey is? He asked, and pulled the gadget out of his pocket. I glanced about, as though uncertain whether or not we should be talking, and acted a little intimidated by him, which wasn't difficult since the kid had a Sharps carbine rifle and clearly knew how to handle it. I was playing a dangerous game here. Too scared, and he would remind himself that he was supposed to be my oppressor. Too friendly, and he would suspect manipulation. I held it at the biting point between the two, focusing on the mystery and feeding him an answer which would lead to more questions. It's a diode. What does it do? What does it look like it does? Looks like it lights up. I just don't know how. Pretty smart, kid, I said, opening up a little with a touch of sincerity. My friend here could tell you all about how she created it. I gestured to Harry. She did. Made that whole machine. At this claim of mine, his face creased up. He was awash with conflicting information. 
Then he saw his father approach him and turned about face to continue his patrol. The link was severed. I backed away from the bars and waited. Sometime later, Adam approached once again and peeked in. Your friend must be super smart. She is, I said softly, hanging back in the shadows. Once we got away from here, we were going to make a whole bunch of those magnificent things on wheels. Have people driving up and down the roads in little ones. I'd love to have one of them. Well, it ain't going to happen now. Chances are they're just going to have us making babies until the end of our days. No machines at all. What a waste, huh? You reckon your friend can tell us how to make one ourselves? What do you think, kid? You think they're going to listen to someone like her? He ruminated and then shook his head. There was no time left. I had to go for broke and use this one chance we had. I tell you what, though, I said, nodding toward the administration desk at the far end of the passage. You go get them keys down by the front and let us out. We can escape and go make more machines. His face went whiter, and he shook his head again. I'd get in terrible trouble. Well, why not come with us? We'll make room for you. You want to learn machines? She can teach you. Harry was staring at me wordlessly, trying her best not to blow this. But as Adam approached the bars and studied her, she looked back and nodded. God's watching me, the boy said with extreme difficulty. I can't be bad. Ever. Well, son, God I know wouldn't call what you're being asked to do bad, I said, feeling the space between us widening and hanging on to the edge with my fingernails. He'd call it mercy. Adam glanced all the way down to the desk and the ring of keys hanging on a hook. Then after a long moment of consideration, backed away from the bars again. Sorry, lady. I want to go to heaven. I shook my head slowly, knowing that to nod at this point would strengthen his resolve not to help us, and that the opposite would leave him in a state of further self-questioning. I elected not to push it, and broke eye contact, praying to whatever God is twisted enough to allow this place to exist, that he might find it in his heart to help us escape it somehow. Miguel, it is today. At four in the morning, by the hands of my pocket watch, I break from my rest in the branches of the tall tree and stretch, shaking out the aches and cold from my limbs. This has to be my time for action, the hour everybody else would most want to be asleep in their bed, dreaming soundly, and be least likely to wake and respond to noises. I break from the forest and rush silently along the west wall of the stockade, finding the place I know has a relatively shallow drop to the other side. Then, with a bone claw in each hand, I climb up the timber wall, digging into the surface as quietly as possible for traction. I vault over and I am surrounded by shadows, though the sky is growing a pale grey. Hugging the side of the nearest house and crouched behind wooden boxes, I firmly fix my claws into their bracelet and carefully apply a cocktail of venoms to the sharp edges. I can see where the jail is. Up on the hill at the back of the village, 
I can sense up above me the sentry who will spy my approach when he turns around. I hitch up on the boxes and gain access to the roof, keeping low. The man walks past, and I allow a few extra feet of room as I stand, spring up, wrap my legs around his back, and simultaneously thrust my claws into his neck. His body jerks and he wheezes in pain, falling to the roof with me on top of him. I hold my claws inside his flesh. We do not move. I cannot cry. I cannot feel his death. I cannot feel for him. This is simply a process I must go through, eliminating the living bodies that will ruin our escape and kill my friends. I cling to him and he shudders, breathing his last. He has a rifle. I do not need it. From up here where I am, the whole village is laid out as green-tiled rooftops, some flat like the one I stand upon now, sloping on either side with a narrow walkway at the peak. Many have other sentries patrolling. I do not need to deal with every section of the village. I risk being seen if I stray too far from the corridor of clearance along the west wall that I am trying to make. I stand and sprint over the roof, springing across the gap between the houses to the next one. At the end of that building, I crouch, keeping my silhouette masked from the man who has stopped far over on my right. Below me, another guard walks the street, holding another gun. He, like the others, is keeping a watchful eye out for the Nahual, protecting his people. So am I. I drop down lightly onto his shoulders, sliding the claw in at the back of his neck, severing his spine. The venom makes this one twitch and flail about, so I am forced to lean back to contain the sound of movement with my body. He is heavy. I cannot drag him far. But with great effort I pull the corpse round to the shadowed alley beside the stockade wall, at least keeping him out of view from the street. I go to my deadliest poison now, recoding the sharp edges near the tip with the venom of the eastern coral snake. I run the grassy slope and reach the outskirts of the jail. A blonde man is there, and I do not slow my momentum, leaping up and slashing across his throat. My arm travels down as my body curves through the air. Upside down I twist my legs around his head as he gives a strangled cry of astonishment and the gathered weight flips him sideways to land on the grass with me crouched atop him. His last sight is a fearsome wooden mongoose mask bearing down upon him. I make my way up the hillside path and see a man and a boy younger than me patrolling the front. At the doorway I can smell Raven from the whiskey and smoke soaked into his clothes and the engine oil on Harry's gloves. They are in here. I wait until the man approaches them and quietly retrieve the ring of keys from the desk, holding them all together in my left hand to prevent them jangling. Abigail spots me down the hall just as the man passes them. She keeps her eye relaxed but is looking straight into mine. I pad up to the man who is very large, and I am shaking. This is the first time I must kill while my friends are watching me, and things do not go right. I cut at his knee and he bellows in pain, dropping and turning, his rifle coming around. I dart nimbly away from it, and angry with myself, I plant my fist in his face, the left claw piercing his right eye socket. 
I hear footsteps as I pass Abigail the heavy keyring and turn to find the boy is in front of me, his rifle raised. It is pointing at my chest. He looks at me, then looks at Abigail, and I pull up my mongoose mask, revealing my face, desperate to convince him I am not a monster. The lock clicks, and Major Butler emerges from the cell, stooping over the man on the floor. Is he all right? The boy cries out. Butler picks up the rifle and shoots the boy in the heart and stalks past the place where he has fallen. Raven. Abigail rushed forward to embrace Delgado. She thanked him profusely and praised his courage before turning to the now fallen child. Adam lay in a pool of dark blood, gasping. Gray and Arlington knelt beside him. He could not speak, could barely comprehend what was happening to his body. His little fingers clutched and spasmed, dropping the rifle as his breathing grew shallow and panicked. Arlington delved into the boy's pocket and brought out the diode, enclosing it in his hand. He glanced over at his dead father, then at Gray. Mistrust and confusion was in his eyes, along with a profound terror. She whispered something in his ear which seemed to alleviate that somewhat, changing his expression. And then he was gone. Gray laid him back down, picked up his gun and we followed the Major. Butler was surveying the town from the hilltop as lamps were beginning to be lit at the sound of the gunshot. We need to get around to the stables to the right of the front gates. Go get horses said Butler, his voice flat as he removed his white scarf and long brown coat and let them fall to the ground. Get out of here. They were the first words he had uttered since Gray had been imprisoned with us. With that, as Arlington, Delgado, Pines, Gray, and myself watched, he stalked off down the pathway to our left. Delgado led us down the way he had come a narrow channel with no living patrols, and we could see Butler walking out to meet the men emerging from their homes. He's making a distraction for us, breathed Pines. I think this is more than that. Shots began firing off and Butler moved with a sudden efficiency and purpose we had not witnessed in him before, ducking behind cover and returning fire. Only his was with deadly accuracy. He switched his attention back and forth between targets, acting instinctually. Two men appeared at his left as he responded, wheeling aside, slamming his rifle butt against the temple of one and catching the throat of the other with the metal muzzle. The Major snatched a pistol from the choking man's belt and shot three more attackers in the heart and then head as they drew near with six precise, rhythmic shots, creating a sound like a locomotive briefly passing through. As quickly as he had grabbed it, the Major dropped that pistol and shot the choking man in the eye with his carbine. We passed behind buildings, keeping our eyes open for ambush, but as Pines had predicted, all attention was on Butler. He appeared to elect which man to shoot and where based on proximity and danger presented, taking his time and using each weapon to its fullest, never reloading, always repurposing. This was not a man going berserk with a hailstorm of lead. This was mechanical and surgical. Men died. Boys died. Any woman who reached for a gun died. 
it was a reckoning in human shape. For us, the onlooking escapees, it chilled the blood to see this man, previously so warm and kind, now an arbiter of merciless retribution. In the coming months, word would spread over the south of the horrors witnessed that night. Butler's reputation would reach near mythical proportions. He would become the monster nobody wished to encounter. Such was the extent of the Major's wrath. We reached the stables, only to find that a contingent of Green Hollow soldier boys were guarding the front gates from down the street, letting fly with a torrent of lead as we stuck our necks out. We retreated and hid in the alley. We're pinned down. Unless Butler can survive long enough to get to the front, we have to take out that group ourselves. Can we just find another way to get out without horses? We can go to the woods. Even if Butler did buy us some time, the nearest place of safety is 50 miles away. On foot, even if we stick to the woods, they'd ride us down in hours. We need horses, or we're dead. If we can't get to the front of the stables, said Arlington, let's get back around to where Major Butler started. We need to arm ourselves, and there might be some loaded guns still on the ground. Best plan we have. Abigail waved us back the way we had come as she led on, checking each turning as she went. A shot rang out from the right, and Gray's shoulder erupted, spinning her around. Two more bullets impacted in her back and chest as she careered behind the nearest building and thrust herself against it, panting. Arlington had her hands over her mouth. Gray checked the armor on her coat, and, her body shaking, gave us a thumbs up. There was no blood. The bullets had not penetrated, but the stone spring ceramics had crumpled from the impact. Another shot in those areas and a round might slip through. Now she was separated from us by the gap between buildings, and down the avenue we were crouched either side of was the cluster of defending soldiers. I could see the man in charge wave towards us. We were trapped. Time slowed. The world closed in as we exchanged final glances, a mixture of feeling behind them. My own disgust, Gray's anger, Arlington's frustration, Pines's fear, Delgado's sorrow. An almighty roar rang through the air, sailing over the western stockade wall above us, framed in the dawn's early light, arms spread wide, paws outstretched, and lined with razor-sharp claws. A purple tiger hung in space for a moment. All of us inhaled, none more swiftly than the boy. The cat descended onto the rooftops and sprang forward as the men fired wildly towards this dodging target, who was upon them in a trice, raining down a whirlwind of wild fury. She tore through their ranks, biting and slashing, throwing, slamming, severing. Men screamed like terrified cornered animals as she cut their lives from them like the Reaper incarnate. They were routed from their dug-in position, and she bounded after the ones who had attempted a pincer movement around us, dashing their heads against the walls, or twisting them violently to one side. She tore a clear path through their ranks, like a force of nature, until she stood, not twenty feet away from Delgado, panting and wreathed in the shadow of the stockade. Her eyes could not be seen. The boy took a tentative step towards her. We held our breath.
have been listening to episode 38 of Steamheart, Salvation, written and directed by Alexander Shaw. Abigail Gray, performed by Sharon Shaw. Adam, performed by Lyra Shaw. Miguel and Raven, performed by Alex Shaw. Frank Butler, performed by Spencer Lieb. Jeremy Pines, performed by Matt Wardle. Harry Arlington, performed by Loretta Saylor. Make Your Decision by Dan Philipson of Shockwave Sound. Emotional Choirs by Carlos Estella. Man Down, Spider Eyes, Tikopia, On the Shore, Past the Edge, Neon Drive, Lost Frontier, and Ossuary. Composed and performed by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Many soundscapes, including Neon Drive by Tabletop Audio. Our $15 patrons get sponsor credit every episode, so thank you to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Connor Kennedy, Brian Novak, John Clayson, Tyler Long, Adam Kilmartin, Joga Seeger, Greg Downing, Tim Rosinski, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksch, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, and Lorraine Chisholm. And if I keep getting your name wrong, let me know via Patreon or Twitter. If you're getting sponsor credit, you may as well get accurate sponsor credit. <laughs>